When the internet was created, the idea was that the free flow of information would transform the world. And it has. Maybe not always in the way the founders anticipated. I mean, who could have predicted that cats would feature so prominently, but here we are. Part of the founders' plan was that the internet, in its purest, ideal form, would be a place where like-minded people could find one another and collaborate. And that part of the founders' vision did live up to their expectations, for good and ill. But one instance of like-minded spirits finding each other via the internet that I'll count in the good column happened to me a little while ago. When I was a young podcaster with a pocket full of dreams and my eyes full of stars, I released my first show for The Secret Life of Death, Episode 1, Epidemic, about an historic 19th century epidemic disease outbreak in interior New England and southern Quebec. And I was thrilled to be contacted by a listener who also had an interest in the topic of historic early 19th century epidemic disease outbreaks in interior New England and southern Quebec. Small world, you say? Yes. Yes, it is. Enter Grant Myers of Austin, Quebec in Canada. Grant was also doing research into the very same epidemic outbreak featured in The Secret Life of Death, Episode 1, and he was kind enough to reach out to me and tell me how much he enjoyed my show and that I should keep producing episodes. And he was also kind enough to point out to me that while I wasn't technically wrong with some of the information I presented in the show, there were some things for which I could have been a little more right. And he agreed to an interview with me to share his research on the subject and make it right. What follows is that interview, which I've edited down for the purposes of time and consistency of content, and so that you wouldn't have to be subjected to a fairly ridiculous stretch in which Grant and I max out the history nerd-ometer. was during the French and Indian War, and it was just like this crazy crazy time period mm-hmm. and and I just love it I just I'm so fascinated by that whole era that's kind of my favorite my fa- if, if I had a favorite time period <laughs> it would be that then we have something exactly in common Gail no way it's, yeah it's one of my favorite periods as well I guess the period from probably just before the um yeah it goes on like that for about five minutes I'm Gail Golick, and this is The Secret Life of Death, bonus, episode one, epidemic, the follow-up. For starters, let me introduce you to Grant. My name is Grant Myers. Grant completed his undergraduate studies at Carleton University in Ottawa and pursued graduate studies at the University of British Columbia. He's a trained archaeologist and did field work professionally in Canada for about 10 years. And as any archaeologist will tell you, our work is the kind of thing that the general public loves, finds fascinating and engaging and have endless questions about, and yet, no one ever seems to want to pay for it. And so, If you ever want to have a regular life and be able to make a car payment or own a house, at some point, 
we all have to hang up our trowels and get regular jobs. And so goes Grant's story. But another thing about being an archaeologist is that even when you hang up your trowel, that love of and the passion for historic preservation never leaves you. Our desire to understand the past never stops, nor does our research. It gets funneled into other outlets. We get involved in our local historical societies or turn our research into podcasts or presentations for other history enthusiasts. And so, also, goes Grant Meyer's story. Grant is currently the president of Quan, the Quebec Anglophone Heritage Network. The Quebec Anglophone Heritage Network is an umbrella group of historical societies and organizations across Quebec that promote and share and celebrate and protect the, uh, the English-speaking heritage of Quebec. You know, what I really like about, we call it Quan, is that it enables both professionals and amateur heritage people to come together and, and work together and, and uh, create things. And we're nonpartisan, and we actually have members that are predominantly francophone in terms of, of how their institutions operate. They do have within their mandate some measure of promotion of English-speaking heritage, and so they, uh, they belong to our organization. But it is important, the work that we do. I'll just say that, that we're only uh, in Quebec, we make up about 13.5% of the population by one measure. So speaking minority is not a huge presence in you know, most of Quebec, you know, right. with the exception of the greater Montreal area where the majority of English speakers are concentrated. It is important because we English speakers have played a, a key role in the development of this province and, and in its history and heritage. And we want to make sure that that voice is right there alongside francophone voices that are mm-hmm. telling their story. So, getting into the nitty-gritty of the topic at hand, Grant has researched the same epidemic I referenced in my episode one. But whereas the incident I talk about happened in Ackworth, New Hampshire, in 1812, Grant's research picks up where my story left off and follows the disease north, up the Connecticut River Valley and into southern Quebec, reaching that area by 1814. And Grant, too, was inspired to take up this research by a chance finding in a local cemetery. The graves of several children of a man named Timothy Rose, a former leader in Grant's own Masonic Lodge. He was the master of our lodge in, I believe, 1819. A good portion of his family are buried in the Rose Cemetery, not far from Stansted. That cemetery contains the graves of five children who died over the Christmas period of 1814, all of spotted fever. And so, you know, I saw these graves and I said to myself, what the heck is that? And one of the children succumbed within eight hours of the onset of, of symptoms, which is an incredibly uh, fast death. And, and so, you know, I asked myself, what was this disease that would kill that many children? And what was this disease that would kill so quickly? And, uh, and so that brought me to about five years of, of you know, on and off research related to spotted fever. And what's fascinating about comparing the cases that Grant found in Canada and the cases I came across in Ackworth, New Hampshire, is how undeniably similar their symptomology was. Reports about Jane Greer, the young woman I featured in my show, said that she was working along making dinner, got a headache, went to bed, 
and was dead by morning. She was the first of 53 people to die in that one town over a three-month period. At the time, doctors assumed the people were succumbing to spotted fever, which is what I reported the culprit to be. And while I'm not technically wrong, Grant's research shows that perhaps I wasn't as right about that diagnosis as I could have been. You know, I want to qualify by saying I don't think you were wrong. I think, as you pointed out, our discussion or our dialogue reflects the intersection of how events are understood in their time and, uh, and how history judges them. And this strange relationship between how we view the past now and how people viewed present that they lived in, I think, is where the really interesting things happen around historical research, particularly, uh, I think, uh, microhistory, as people talk about today, or what I would call uh, social history in this context. And so, historical reference were calling this outbreak spotted fever, which was usually a term used to refer to the tick louse-borne disease of typhus. But to Grant, there was something about these cases in the 1810s in New England and Quebec that just didn't seem like the -the run-of-the-mill form of typhus. And so, he began his research into where it came from, where it went, and what it might actually be. And so... When I began looking at spotted fever, the first reference that I found was to the the illness in Vermont and a statement that it had killed, you know, one in 40 Vermonters, right? And I said, geez, that seems incredibly high. And I'm still a little skeptical about about that. It was a non-contemporary reference, something in a, you know, one of these, you know, local histories. You know, every town seems to write, you know, about themselves at one point in time. But when I started looking around more, I, I started to uncover many contemporary texts by medical professionals from the time and quickly established that this disease had shown up in Geneva, Switzerland in, I believe, 1804-1805 and had made its way to uh, Medfield in Massachusetts in 1806. I want to make sure I, I have that correct and then spread throughout New England quite virulently and quite rapidly in the decade that followed. I started to kind of map it and looked in a lot of these contemporary references, uh, newspapers, uh, medical journals, that kind of thing, to identify instances of the uh, disease. And I, I was able to track maybe about 75, 80, and I put them on a map, and it's quite clear that you can see the track of the disease running from New England up into Canada, following patterns of migration up through the Connecticut River Valley, to a lesser extent, other river valleys, such as the the Merrimack, uh, Pemigewasset River system, and possibly Hudson River, Lake Champlain system, although I haven't been able to map that as much. One saw the progression of this this, uh, disease. The more Grant learned, the more he became convinced that this was not typhus. And amazingly, he came across several contemporary medical references that said just that. Some people were at the time were saying, okay, this is typhus, uh, typhoides, they would call it. And and many medical professionals and lay people at the time didn't understand the difference between typhoid and typhus. Others were saying, this is something entirely different that we have not seen before. So, so I began to look for clues as to what it was and what's, what, why the confusion existed 
was that when you look at typhus, you, you look at a list of symptoms commonly associated with this disease, being headache, fever, nausea, uh, delirium, all of these kinds of things. Symptoms are really similar. And it would have been easy, given the knowledge at the time, to mistake this uh, for, for, uh, for typhus because it was a known uh, disease. But as I said, I decided to follow up on the notion that this was something entirely different. There were references, later references, to this disease being something that they called uh, cerebral meningitis. We would know it as uh, meningococcal disease now, caused by a particular bacterium. The bacterium is called Neisseria meningitidis, which, as Grant said, causes very similar symptoms to typhus hence the confusion to the medical professionals. But how typhus and bacterial meningitis act in and on the body are very different, and were the key to clinching the diagnosis. But, but I was a little skeptical, so I did take my cases and, and kind of looked at, as small as the sample was, there were three things that pointed to, to bacterial meningitis or meningococcal disease, as opposed to typhus, and they were the majority of the cases were from individuals that were uh, under 20 years of age. And there's, there's a steep drop-off uh, right around 20 years of age. And it really levels, the curve really levels off. And so it was affecting children and young adults. One of the other characteristics of this disease that, that we certainly saw, and this is why you would see all sorts of symptoms that would be there one, one time and not again and all of this kind of stuff, is because this is a highly mutable bacterium, a highly adaptable bacterium. I'd mentioned the, the speed at which this disease can kill. And typhus, the symptoms are usually carry out over you know, a couple of weeks. And again, in most cases, this wasn't the case here. And I, typhus just won't kill that fast. And those three elements were certainly present in the 1812 case of Jane Greer in Ackworth, and the 1814 cases of the Rose children in Stansted, Quebec. They were all under 20 years of age, were hit with a confusing array of symptoms, and on average fell ill and died within the course of 15 hours. Staggering. And as Grant learned, the development and spread of meningococcal disease requires a very specific relationship between its host and their environment all of which he was able to confirm existed in New England and southern Quebec during the 1810s. So th this bacterium, one of the primary drivers of epidemic meningitis globally, and occurrences still happen in certain, certain parts of the world, particularly in what's called the meningitis belt in Africa. Between 10 and, depending on the research, 10 and 25 percent of the population carry that bacterium at the back of their throat, nasal secretions shared through casual and intimate contact, that perhaps something as casual as sharing a glass of water, have the potential to share this, uh, this bacterium. So in the meningitis belt in Africa, the disease corresponds to the dry season where there's a lot of dust and there's a lot of irritation. And there's some researchers have suggested that that irritant related to breathing in things like dust and smoke leaves people more susceptible to the disease. So there, there are a lot of asymptomatic carriers of this disease. And so 
uh, it could be transferred to me, I could carry it and clear it without any evidence of the infection. I could transfer it to others and they could do the same thing. They could be infected and carry it asymptomatically. And then there's the third scenario where there is infection and development of invasive disease occurs. Asymptomatic carriage is critical to the spread of the disease because if everyone was infected and they were all dying, the disease would just burn out, right? right. So asymptomatic mm. carriage is really important to the survival of this uh, and transference of this bacterium. So there's research that talks about indoor cooking, exposure to smoke, all of these kinds of things. And so again, that brought me back to New England and I think in Southern Quebec, and I think people living in close proximity for a long time and perhaps living, living rough in some cases was a primary driver of this, this disease. And so at the end of the 18th century, people were, there was mass migration up the Connecticut River. People were living in tents. People were living in temporary housing, these kinds of things. There's a book called Forest and Clearings, and, and it's one of, these, one of these, again, local history books, History of Stansted County here in Quebec. There are some quotes from people that were still living that remembered this epidemic. And one of them, a person that moved up with her family from the United States into Stansted in the early years of the 19th century or, or the closing years of the, the uh, 18th century, she remembers that. And she says, from 1811 to 1814, the spotted fever prevailed throughout most of the settlements in the townships and swept away many promising young men and women. This was just not a folk memory. This was somebody mm. who experienced this firsthand. And that was really, uh, really interesting. Later, this young woman, Mary Lovejoy, who, who later became uh, Mary Taylor, uh, recalled how they lived in a tiny little cabin with uh, just a hole in the roof for a chimney and all of this, you know, these kinds of things. And there were two families living in there. And, and so when you think about that, the way that this disease is potentially shared, that would have been, you know, the perfect incubator mm. and, uh, and vehicle for the, for the transfer of this disease. So, as we can see, a range of factors led to the development of meningococcal disease throughout the Northeast Corridor in the 1810s. And it's no wonder that the medical professionals were confused as to what exactly they were dealing with. The nature of, and the lack of understanding of the disease transmission and origin, led to a lot of misinformation and misdiagnoses along the way. Other diseases, you know, for example, viral in influenza and its various forms, pneumonia, all of these kinds of things were likely coincident with this disease. And so people, are, as you say, you know, were living rough. Their immune systems were already compromised. One of the things that the, the medical profession complained about was, we're calling this spotted fever, we don't always see spots. And so um, where you were really seeing the spots is when this bacterium was causing the swelling of the membrane around the brain and the spinal column, the uh, meninges. Sometimes, however, this bacterium also traveled in the blood and caused septicemia. And it's when you had the septicemia that you started getting the pooling of blood just underneath the skin, and it would cause this blotchy purple rash that mimic uh, the rash that one would see, uh, you know, in, uh, in typhus. Because there was such confusion, there certainly were 
misdiagnoses. And I think some of the cases that perhaps were reported as spotted fever were in fact likely typhus. And in some cases, I think some of the typhus cases were uh, likely misdiagnosed as spotted fever. So there is, there is a bit of confusion there, which is completely understandable when you're looking at two diseases with very such similar symptoms. In some cases, there's evidence of every family on the road being wiped out by this disease, or at least being, you know, houses standing empty because whole families have succumbed. You know, people have lost five, six, seven children. And then in other cases, your neighbor has been affected, but you haven't. And you're trying to understand, you know, why. And it's, it's that notion of asymptomatic carriage is just so important. And factors, accidental or otherwise, that are playing a role in whether you're carrying the bacterium asymptomatically or it's manifesting the disease are so complex. Today, with our understanding of medical science, we delight in being able to untangle this very convoluted story. It's quite clear from the safe distance of 200 years that this instance is likely a case of meningococcal disease. That attitude is a luxury of the knowledge of our age. And that's a humbling and heartbreaking reminder that the populations actually contending with this epidemic in the 1810s were up against things that were quite beyond their understanding, let alone their control. Medical professionals were desperately trying to figure this out, compiling information from any and all sources, hoping to find something that would help them get a hold of this frightening epidemic. They made careful observations on every aspect of their patient's symptomology, what they ate, and the effects of their treatments of bleeding, purging, and plasters. One thing some of the more astute medical professionals noted was that the region's erratic weather seemed to be a factor, though they could never quite figure out how. There were some really strange things going on with the climate of New England and, you know, southern Canada, at least uh, at that time. Likely, I'm sure you've heard of the, you know, 1816, the year without a summer. Well, if we go back to, you know, 1804, 1805, we're already hearing uh, about strange weather, you know, rapid rises of temperature in the winter, frost in June, all of these kinds of things. So when we talk about a society that was mainly dependent on the land to make a living, most people were farmers then. That would have added a, an extra layer of stress. And there is some suggestion this played a role in the disease. And, and I have quotes from uh, at least three medical professionals that talk about, that have linked the disease to the erratic weather they, they were having. Of course, they understood it differently then, right? Smell, yeah. chills, and all of that kind of thing. You know, but I think they were right about that at link. One medical professional, Joe Wilson from Concord, New Hampshire, said, of late, the changes of our climate have been so extraordinary and the effects of those changes so obvious that we are contained to believe that the great changes of temperature have had an important effect in producing the present epidemic. For all of the nerdity being thrown at you today, you have to admit, this is a pretty fascinating topic to reconstruct. And I'm so grateful to Grant for contacting me and being so willing to share all that he knew about this story. It makes for a much more complete history and better honors the tragedy that befell the people of New England and southern Quebec 
who were so brutally cut down by this epidemic. That we know that the main actor in the 1810s epidemic was a likely meningococcal disease and not typhus is a riveting fact. Like Grant said, this misdiagnosis is part of the micro-social history of this region, and for nerds like us, we love that kind of detail. But in its time, whether typhus or meningococcal disease was the culprit would have been irrelevant to the people in New England and southern Quebec. Because either way, with the state of medical science in the 1810s, there was little they could have done to treat it, even if they had known. But today, we do know. And beyond the interest in this story for history's sake, understanding all the factors in documented historical epidemics is critical because it informs our public health policies, serving as desperately important reminders of what unchecked infectious disease can do. A huge thanks to Grant Myers, who graciously shared his knowledge and his time and his voice to this interview. And thank you for listening. This brings us to the end of season one of The Secret Life of Death. I've learned so much and had a blast. I've even had a blast figuring out all the things I didn't know. Season two will start early in 2020, and I gotta tell you, you're in for some real humdingering shows. Please spread the word about The Secret Life of Death if you would. And if you take nothing else away from this show, just remember, live fast, leave a beautiful headstone, and all the cool kids have a favorite time period. I'm so fascinated by that whole era. That's kind of my favorite. My fa- if, I, if I had a favorite time period, <laughs> it would be that. Then we have something exactly in common, Gail. No way! Yeah, it's one of my favorite periods as well. I guess the period from probably just before the... Um... For more information about this show, visit our website at thesecretlifeofdeath.com. And for weekly extras and fun photos, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy this show on any of these podcast platforms. Apple Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Radio Public.